Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to our service. Thank you for turning out on a, what I think is a very cold morning. I don't know about anybody else, but this morning I've been shivering. So good to see you, and I just pray that um, we will feel the warmth of fellowship with each other and God's presence. Uh, before I start from God's word, let's pray. Father, we thank you for the tremendous privilege that is afforded to us through your Son, by his death and resurrection and his ascension into heaven, to come close to you. We pray that as we do so now in prayer and as we look into your word, you will speak to us, you will cheer our hearts, you will remind us of who you are and our place before you, but also that you will encourage us this week to seek to speak out the goodness and the greatness of your love, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and your place in our lives. But bless us now, I pray, O Father, and the hearing of a word in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're looking at um, the first few verses of a, a new series in the writings of John, uh, in the first letter of John. And as we can see that... Uh, yeah, it's that side. I was looking on the wrong side of this slide. We're looking at the word of life as the title for our, our morning passage. But I'm going to ask three questions before we get anywhere near our text. And the first of those is, where do you find your joy? Where do you find your joy? Now, there's a lady called Jennifer King Lindley who wrote a book in called, entitled Finding your joy. We should have a picture of the cover come up. Um, it's subtitled, A Powerful Self-Care Journal to Help You Thrive. This lady is quite an interesting lady. I don't know if any, has anybody read this book? It's not one that I would wholly recommend, but looking at her Pinterest account, amongst all of the other worldly wisdom that she has pinned on her uh, board, she has a number of scriptural references, which I found quite interesting, considering who this lady is and what she has written in the past and what she stands for. The worldly perspective of joy is that you deserve to be happy, you deserve to live your life, a life that you're excited about, but moreover, don't let others make you forget that. So a world attitude towards joy is the self-deserving attitude of happiness. Now I want to know, or I'd like to know, what you find your happiness in. Where do you source your sense of happiness or, or joy? I think we'll just pause for a moment because I think Roy has discovered that Betty's very unwell in the corner there. So if we could just take a moment and we'll just pray for her um, and for Roy as he, he looks after her there. So Father, we just bring Betty before you now and we ask that whatever has ailed her will soon pass and thank you for uh, answering our prayer already as I see she's, she's awake now. I just ask that you'll bless her um, and just have your hand upon her in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs> 
Okay, where do you find your happiness? Where do you find your joy? Is it in things that you own? Is it, say, for example, your car or your house or your music collection or the food upon your plate going out for a meal with others? Is it in things? Or is it in people, your family, your children, your peer group, or celebrities? Where is it that you get a sense of happiness and satisfaction from? There's an African proverb that says, happiness isn't perfected until it's shared. So maybe you find your happiness in the company of others, in events, going on holiday, or spending time with your children, or going to parties, or having a trip to the cinema. When my wife and I got engaged, I took her to see a movie. She had no idea what I was like and what the movie would be. It was one of the Star Wars movies. She wondered what on earth she was getting herself into. Since then, she's often said to me, what is the point of going to the cinema with a friend? All you do is sit in the darkness and look at something. And I suppose there's a sense of truth about that. Um, I can't help that she's a Luddite and doesn't understand these things. But do you find your sense of happiness and joy in being with others and doing a shared activity. And that leads me on to my second question. Do you find, what is, what is your source of true friendship or fellowship? What sort of things do you find um, sort of common relationship in? One can do without people, said Chinese person once, but one has need of a friend. One can do without people, but you have need of a friend. We, some of us got together last night for a board game evening, and it was good to spend time with other people and, and enjoy, well, from my perspective, enjoy losing, but it was great just to have friendship, people gathering around and sharing in a joint activity. Now, that's a very male attitude towards fellowship. I understand that. We tend to gather around things like broken car engines or stuff like that. Something that we can both enjoy and approach, uh, approach together. Uh, ladies, I do believe, is slightly different. You gather around knitting patterns and babies and things like that. No, I jest. There is a difference between how we relate to each other, but quite often we find our source of satisfaction in each other. Maybe that's a chess club, or going to a football match, or going to a swimming pool. Maybe, again, it's our friends and our family, or a sharing of our hobbies. One person said, as long as you are standing, give a hand to those who have fallen. And that sense of being together and lifting each other up and joining together is a good source of complete satisfaction for people. But then within all of that, within all of the things that we've got and stuff that we approach with our attitudes and all the friends and the family that we spend time with, what really is of substance? What is our reality? Someone once said that life is happened, happens while you're making other plans. 
And so sometimes we live in a circumstance or a way of living. Our life is surrounded by things that are just out of control. We have no relationship to them and we wish they weren't taking place. Reality, said Hio Miyazaki, is for people who lack imagination. And we do live in a, uh, an alternative reality, virtual reality, besotted generation. If it's not real, it's much better. But the trouble with a fake reality is that there's no real once upon a time. There's no real fairy tale to follow. And in actual fact, wanting for something is not the same as finding it. We have this desire to have something substantial and real and worthwhile in our lives. And Bono said famously, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. I used to dream about escaping my ordinary life, but when I was never, but I, it was never ordinary. I had simply failed to notice how extraordinary it was, said Ransom Riggs. But that extraordinariness in our lives may be just round the corner. The trouble is, we don't know what corner to go round to get to it. And I had to chuckle when I read it in an entirely different concept, but this sort of anticipation of success being just round the corner. And somebody I know said, yeah, it might be that I find the right corner and go round it, but then I find I'm wearing the wrong trousers. It just doesn't fit me. Just, I'm not suited for it. So referring back to that book on finding joy, in a review, somebody wrote this. Get happy with the simple but powerful practices in this beautiful guided journal, grounded in the new science of positive psychology. That's where the world looks. But let's look at what the Bible says. Let's look at our passage. And I just want to read those words again. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. All those things which I've just said about how the world approaches joy and reality and fellowship are touched on in this passage. It may not be immediately apparent to you. I just want to set a little bit of background to this passage. The language that is used in these opening four verses is very, very difficult to fully comprehend. 
Because it seems as though John is referring to Jesus Christ as a thing, that which. But it's not actually what he means. But also, there's no introduction. It's like, bang, straight in. John is there and he's telling you what he wants to say. And what he wants to say relates back to something that happened a long time ago. That which was from the beginning. You remember, and you should know, that John's opening phrases of his gospel was in the beginning. In the beginning. God. And that's how Genesis opens. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, says John 1.1. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, which will touch on, and the life was the light of men. And that concept of light uh, moves on in the rest of this chapter, which we won't touch on from 1 John. In Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. Now John is pulling on that truth of the very beginning of things. And that's the background, the context to what he has to say. It's from the beginning that these things have come. And he goes on to say, and this is where I'm going to reverse my points earlier on. I'm going to talk about real life, not the virtual life and the empty life that we are thinking about from the world's perspective, but that real life, that which we have heard, that which we have seen with our eyes, that which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, those things are the things from the beginning, or rather, more expressly, a real person. David was saying earlier that John talks here about him and his friends, and they were able to touch and to see and to hear and to experience Jesus. It wasn't a story that had been passed down from grandmother to grandchild. It wasn't a fable or a rumour that was running riot on the streets. This was a real person. This was reality for John and the disciples. And he got near. It's not as though he was told about someone who was real. He wasn't told about someone who had experienced Jesus. He was there. He heard. He saw. They laughed together. They cried together. They walked together. They lived a life for a few years together. Six times in John's letter, we will read the phrase, Son of God. So it wasn't just a, a physical person that John became aware of and knew, not just like any other friend, but there was a spiritual dynamic to it as well. In fact, John so knew who this person of Jesus was that he trusted and committed himself to him. 
And in his own writings in the Gospels, in chapter 3, we read that he talks about a situation where you must be born again. And that for John, that was true. This reality, this real life, was something that wasn't just like a vapour, it wasn't smoke on the wind, it was substantial. And he knew it. But more than that, this life was manifested. That's a very interesting word. It's sort of like a a revelation. It's like a, a peek behind the curtains of something that is otherwise hidden. And in our slide, it's a as something glorious, something very different, bright and shining. Romans chapter 1 verse 20 says that creation reveals the invisible attributes and his eternal power and divine nature. Even since the creation of the world, these things have been made known. And so people are without excuse. But we look for excuses, don't we? We look for excuses. We say, well, how can I really know? That's very all well and good, but what is the real substance of stuff? And when Philip said to Jesus, again recorded in John's writings, Lord, show us the Father, and that is enough, Jesus said, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Now that's not just know about me, That's not just, here's my friend Jesus, nice to meet you. This is, do you not know me, who I am? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So this Jesus is the incarnation, the exact representation, the full revelation of God, the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is me? Something John refers to in this passage. The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe in me that I am in the Father and in the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. John knew that Jesus was manifested. God was made flesh and lived amongst people. And in, uh, later on in his writing here in chapter 2 of the first letter of John, we'll read eventually, who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. Notice the link there, that to deny that Jesus is the Christ is synonymous, the same as denying the Father. This is the manifestation. This is God made really real, if you forgive the wording. Later in John chapter 4 of our letter, we will read these words in verses 1 to 3. Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. 
And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. So John is keen to say that this life, this real thing, is God manifest. And again in chapter 5 of the same letter, in verse 20, we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. So this, this is a manifestation. This is reality breaking into our dreams and our fake lives. And John says, of this, I want to share it. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life. This declaration, got a picture hopefully come up of a bunch of bewigged gentlemen signing a very important document. Anybody know what this is about? Declaration of Independence. Independence. So this is when our American friends decided that their British friends were not good enough for them and they wanted their own life. No, more than that. This is perhaps when our American brothers felt that the British dominance was like being subjugated to slavery. No, maybe something different. Maybe this was a declaration of something that they wanted, that they knew and felt to be real. We have a gospel to proclaim. We have something to declare. And John says, we declare and testify and proclaim this to you. This is eternal life. The American Declaration of Independence was the beginning of a new life for a whole continent of people, an entire nation, because a paper was signed. When God came in the body of Jesus and was manifest to an entire nation of people, new life began. And that new life is in him for his people. I'm not talking about the children of Israel. I'm not talking about the nations on the, uh, the far end of the Mediterranean ocean, sea rather. I'm talking about his people. His kingdom, the borders of his kingdom, are drawn through the hearts of people, not on a map. And so he declares new life. You see, why would, why would he do this? Because he's experienced it. He knows who Jesus is and he wants people to know. So we testify and proclaim. And if it wasn't enough for him to say, you know, in the beginning of this chapter, writing the first two verses, we saw and heard and touched, he says it again which we have seen and heard and proclaimed to you also. He knows what it is 
to be fully alive because he has met Jesus and he wants other people to know about it. Does that not challenge us? We who have touched and felt and heard and seen the things of God through Christ, why are we so quiet about it? I want to read a lengthy passage from um, Ezekiel chapter 16. I've picked out a few verses. If you get a chance, go and have a look at Ezekiel 16 and read it all through because there are, you'll see why I've missed a few verses out. But here we go. So I'm reading from verse 4 through um, a few verses up to verse 14. Now God is talking to the people of, of Israel and he's saying this, And as for your birth, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling clothes. No, I pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you. But you were cast out on the open field, for you were abhorred on the day that you were born. I would take that as a sense of illustration of, if you don't agree with me, you can come and talk to me afterwards, of the doctrine of original sin. When we are born, we are born as alienated from God. We are born as enemies of God, abhorred. But, and we carry on with our reading. When I passed by you, I saw you wallowing in your blood, and I said to you in your blood, live. I said to you in your blood, live. I made you to flourish like a plant in the field, and you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. When I passed by again and saw you, I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made a vow to you and I entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. Then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed with you oil. With oil, I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. And I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. And I put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver and your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty and your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through the splendour that I had bestowed upon you, declares the Lord God. Ezekiel chapter 16 speaks to me about the salvation of souls. It speaks to me about God's deep-seated love so that he speaks a word of life to us. But more than that, he dresses us, he bedecks us with jewels. We grow as a church, as a people of God, into beautiful people in the eyes of God. And our renown, because of that, because of what he has done to us, goes out through all the earth. The chapter will go on in Ezekiel to say, but you trusted in your own beauty and denied me. Does that not speak to us? To see what the word of life does 
This word of life is to be declared. This word of life, which was embodied in Christ, this word of life, which John touched and saw and heard, no wonder he wants to talk about it. No wonder he wants to talk about it. Once he's experienced it, he has to share it. He needs, it's like a burning in his bones. To quote somebody else, woe is me if I do not preach. Woe is me if I do not declare. Woe is me if I do not share. This is beautiful things, declares the God of heaven. But our text doesn't end with that. Our text goes on and says, we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you in verse 3, so that you too may have fellowship with us. Remember at the beginning, we talked about how things that we look around us about trying to find our joy in the things that are around us, the people and the places we go to and joint experiences. Well, real fellowship, says John, comes from the revelation of being in Christ. A proverb from Romania. Better is a neighbour that is near than a brother far off. The church, the true church of Christ, and I don't mean city evangelical church on its own, I mean the, the, the worldwide true church of Christ, has but one body. It is joined to the same Jesus, the head of the body from which we grow. But within that sameness, within that sort of we're all united in Christ, we all have the same fears. We all enjoy similar or identical successes and failings. Don't be afraid to be honest and vulnerable. That's how people connect with you. Because we understand that we are joined to Christ, because we understand that we are nothing, we're not worthy, we're like Ezekiel's chapter, kicking in a field, abhorred and cast out. But God has joined us together. He's taken each of us, moulding us into the likeness of him. If you were to go to a support group where you find that there are others there who have the same troubles that you have in your life, you might agree with this phrase. Things I was ashamed of and felt guilt for were common in the group. It was a profound and powerful experience. To be open and vulnerable and to share your deepest troubles, your deepest feelings of guilt over things you've done or said or thought, and to share those with others for whom that is the same issue, that profound sense of acceptance is powerful. That sense of true fellowship. <coughs> Hebrews chapter 10 says, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love 
and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, all the more as you see the day approaching. To be in fellowship, true fellowship with each other, because of our unity with this real Jesus is real life. It's not wearing a visor. It's not holding handheld controls, pretending you're somewhere else. It's real in the muck and mire of everyday living. It's not good for man to be alone. But finally, as time passes by, that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship with the Father and the Son, Jesus Christ. We're united with heaven almost. The one who sits on the throne, the one who sits by his right hand. But John finishes this little paragraph at the beginning of his letter with saying this, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete, or that your joy may be complete. A true joy is to be found as a fruit of the Spirit, and I believe I've got a picture of people being happy. There we go. Do you find joy in fake religion? Do you find joy in pretending to be what you're not when you come to church? That sense of satisfaction that you're with others who are here as well and that you read the same Bible together and you sing the same songs and then you go away and you're the same people, unchanged by your experience. Rejoice in the Lord always, says Philippians chapter 4. And again I say, rejoice. That full joy of being together as the body of Christ, knowing that we are joined to him, the real manifestation of the Heavenly Father. There is nothing like it. I don't know if you know the great statesman, Winston Churchill. Some of you may have heard of him before. But allegedly, he was provided with a dessert at a meal and he sent it back because, and he said, it lacked a theme. I have no idea what he meant by that. But what I gather from it is that it was unsatisfactory. He found no joy in it. Full and unfettered joy comes from being in the presence of God and his people. Psalm 16, verse 11, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Incidentally, and it's just occurred to me as I read that and having said what I've just said, at the Father's right hand is the Father's Son, in whom are pleasures forevermore. But to go back and try and keep ourselves within John's experience and his writing, his declaration and his proclamation, in chapter 15 of his Gospel he says this. He records these words. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. This is Jesus speaking. Abide in my love. 
If you can keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you. Why? So that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Joy in Jesus is true joy. And our next picture should show somebody really enjoying themselves. Now, when I looked at this photograph, I thought it's a bit fuzzy around the edges because I've over-enlarged it. But isn't that our experience? We're a bit fuzzy around the edges. Our joy is a little bit out of focus sometimes, a bit over-enlarged. To final words, I'll leave to John's writings again, and we'll have a song after this. John chapter 16, verse 22. Jesus is talking about when he leaves his disciples um, and he has to go through the... Um, uh, words fail me to re really express what I'm trying to say here, but he has to endure the cross, despise its shame for the glory that was set before him, even death on a cross. He says, of his disciples and how they were feeling, also, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. Amen. I pray as the musicians make their way up to the front and then we'll have our final song. Father, just thank you for your word to us this morning and do pray that we will, each of us, experience that complete and absolute joy in fellowship, in union with our Lord Jesus Christ the manifestation, the manifest of Jesus, of God in heaven. I pray that we will take to heart the words that have come to us this morning and that from our time together in each other's company and in your company, in this, your building, today, will inspire us and encourage us, challenge us and keep us throughout the rest of the week. Amen.